Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. And today we will be discussing Doctrine and Covenants, sections 93 through 97 for Come Follow Me. We are also members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. One episode that I listened to recently was by the Dialogue Journal. It was their gospel study episode. It's number 48 with George Handley. In this episode, it was really interesting. They were covering a section in Doctrine and Covenants and talking about whether God is transcendent or imminent. Is God above all things or is God in all things? Mm. And how that seems like a paradox, but it's actually a healthy tension. Depending on which way you lean, it'll really change your attitude toward how you live your life and how you view God. It really changes a lot and that it's good to see it both ways. And if you go too extreme on one end or the other, it can be bad. An example is if you think that God is imminent, it'll lead you to excuse racism and ableism and homophobia when you see it because in your mind you're like, well, God will take care of it if it's meant to be taken care of or it'll all work out in the end, those kind of ideas. Anyway, yeah, if you want to listen to that episode, you can find the Dialogue Journal on Spotify. I think they're on other audio platforms as well. Or you can just go to their website, dialoguejournal.com. Thank you. That's really interesting. I'll have to check that out. Oh, let's talk about the announcement that the church made about masks and vaccines. Yeah, it'll be a little tiny bit old by the time this episode airs, so excuse our lateness on this. But yeah, the church sent out an email and announcement about COVID-19, about vaccines and masks. I was thinking we could break it down line by line. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. The announcement starts out, Dear brothers and sisters, we find ourselves fighting a war against the ravages of COVID-19 and its variants, an unrelenting pandemic. I think it's interesting that they call it a war and that it's unrelenting. Yes, we're still in a pandemic, despite everyone's attitudes of being over it. It's still happening and we still need to be cautious. Yeah. Actually, I wanted to point out that it was also sent to church members around the world. It wasn't just sent to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the U.S. Yeah, good point. And we also should say that it is really unfortunate that it was sent out now instead of yeah a year ago or even months ago, yeah. like however much time you want to say. Hopefully people listen now. Yeah, it, the Salt Lake Tribune, actually, on Instagram, they shared a post about the church's announcement, and I commented on it, and I was like, about 18 months too late. If it was 18 months ago, like, literally, like, January or February, when we were first hearing about it in other countries, and you would think that a prophet and seer and revelator would take notice of that, especially for the whole world, mm -hmm. and would say something preemptively, I feel like a lot of people's lives could have been saved and so that's really unfortunate like i mean it's unfortunate that some people like need to hear it from those old white men you know what i mean yeah actually and that leads us into the next line of the actual statement the church released it says we want to do all we can to limit the spread of these viruses so with that we have to responsibly ask is the church doing all it can and then are the church's people just the members doing all we can uh, no. <laughs> That's the short answer. Yeah. We can kind of leave that as a question to think about. What do we think the church responsibly should be doing? Is it doing all it can? And then am I as an individual member or as my ward doing all it can? How can we encourage our leaders to do all they can to protect people and encourage proper knowledge and education about what's going on right now and action along with that? The next line is, we know that protection from the diseases they cause, meaning the viruses, can only be achieved by immunizing a very high percentage of the population. 
Mic drop. Yeah, can only be achieved by immunizing, a.k.a. vaccines. Yep. The next line is, to limit exposure to these viruses, we urge the use of face masks in public meetings wherever social distancing is not possible. Face masks urged. (laughs) I mean, I wish it kind of annoys me that they still had to put a caveat in there where it's like whenever social distancing is not possible, because Mm. that leaves a loophole, you know, for people to be like, well, we're sitting six feet away, so we don't need to wear a mask. And then suddenly they're sitting four feet away and then two feet away. And then it's like living in BYU dorms all over again where you're on top of each other. (laughs) Anyway, uh, sorry. People will try to get away with whatever they can get away with, you know? Yeah. And you have to think about like if you are actually in a meeting or whatever event where people are six feet apart, what about when you get up and use the bathroom or when everyone leaves at the end and goes to their cars? Like, are you remasking or are you just saying, oh, it was socially distanced during the event and then you don't think about even bringing your mask? You know, yeah, you have to just always have your mask on you, wear it whenever you can, really. The next line is, to provide personal protection from such severe infections, we urge individuals to be vaccinated. So vaccines are urged. They call it severe infections. And then the part that I wish that they said something different is personal protection. It says to provide personal protection. I wish they said communal protection here instead. They did reference community responsibility and action above when they were referring to immunizing earlier, but didn't here. Yeah. Then it says available vaccines have proven to be both safe and effective. I feel like people who are super against vaccines and masks believe that they are both unsafe and not effective. Mm. So it's good that they listed both words there. Yeah. We can win this war if everyone will follow the wise and thoughtful recommendations of medical experts and government leaders. I feel like that must have been like pulling teeth for them to write that. (laughs) You think so? (laughs) I really, so this line I thought was really interesting because the entire statement, the first sentence, it talks about war and an unrelenting pandemic. And then the end is saying we can win this war if everyone follows this guidance. Mm -hmm. It won't be an unrelenting pandemic. The war can end if you do these things. And then it ends, please know of our sincere love and great concern for all of God's children. Signed, the First Presidency, Russell M. Nelson, Dallin H. Oaks, Henry B. Eyring. This message, this actually connects to section 95. It stated that it's sent out of love and concern, but also we're being called to repent and do better. And there's a divine way to invite people to repent that's followed in Doctrine and Covenants section 95. And I think it's really cool that they used mm. these elements in this statement. Wait, where did, where is it saying that they're urging people to repent? Oh, it doesn't say the word repent, but just the entire message. It's saying like, it is what it is. Please be smart and follow these guidelines. Oh, I wish they did uh, call yeah. people to repentance and straight up said like, It's a sin for you not to wear a mask or not to get vaccinated if you're able to. Yeah, good point. Okay, so yeah, there's the church's statement, good and bad. I personally see it as like now that it's happened and they've made this statement overall good, I feel like they tried really hard to balance showing love and care for all the different perspectives that are going on right now, but also making really important, well, urges, I guess. It's not really commands or (laughs) they don't use really bigger words than urging to wear masks and get vaccinated. Actually, Beyond the Block, they just recorded an episode where they talked about having empathy for people who believe such different things throughout this time. And I'm really trying so hard to do that. It's hard when there's literally people dying and literally people at risk and it's our people, right, Serena? It's It's our people that are at risk. Yeah. I appreciated that they talked about the vaccine hesitant, um, as that could include some some immunocompromised people who 
for some reason their doctors are like, eh, it's up to you, mm-hmm. but these are the risks. Or um, some people who are like overseas or other marginalized populations who have been misled and exploited by like medical authorities and beyond the block talked about that and so i appreciate them stating that however like all these white people who are just conspiracy theorists and refuse to do research or refuse to recognize valid research that goes against their opinions that they previously held Yeah. Anti-vaxxers and vaccine-hesitant people are not the same thing. So I am glad that Derek and James brought that up. But uh, yeah, the the empathy thing, I just don't like the word empathy at this point. (laughs) I think it's misused a lot and not understood. That's a limited resource. I'll just say it like that. And I'm not going to waste it on people that are harming me. Yeah, that's totally understandable. It's complicated for sure. I hope that when this is read, people can be aware of disabled people who literally can't get the vaccine because there are people like that and we need to support them and yeah, and encourage them to wear masks and encourage others to wear masks and get vaccinated for those who literally can't. But I am understanding from the things I'm seeing in reports that it's mostly people that are choosing not to get vaccinated that are the problem of why the surge is so strong right now. Yeah. Please, please, please get vaccinated and wear masks if you can. Do your best to be conscious of yourself and others. Agreed. All right. Should we go into Come Follow Me now? Yeah. Yeah. I'll do a quick summary. 93 is revelation given to Joseph in Kirtland about humans' relationship with God and our duties in our families. 94 through 95 is revelation giving about building buildings, temples, and the oversight of this. 96 is revelation sought by a group of brethren because they couldn't agree on what to do with a piece of land. And then 97 is talking about the saints being forced to leave Jackson County and they're seeing Zion as a higher elevated spiritual thing. It means the pure of heart, not just a place. So with verses 12 through 14. Okay, so this is talking about John the Revelator seeing Jesus come to earth. And I, John, saw that he received not of the fullness of the first, but received grace for grace. And he received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. And thus he was called the Son of God, because he received not of the fullness at first. I was just curious, do you see any tie-ins there between, like, Jesus coming down into, like, a physical body and learning as he went and, like, disability? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I kind of think grace to grace until you receive a fullness. Like how some sometimes you're just moving on with the little bit that you have. And sometimes you progress to something greater. And sometimes, I mean, in disability, sometimes you don't. Like some days you have more spoons than other days. How you have to move from bit to bit sometimes and be really good to yourself and patient with yourself with that progress. I like that, like allowing yourself the grace, right, to exist as you are day by day instead of Mm -hmm. expecting perfection, which is highly ableist, right, all at once. Because even Jesus didn't become Jesus all at once. I mean, he was Jesus, but he didn't know everything and have all these spiritual insights all at once. Mm. It even says in Doctrine and Covenants 93 that he had the veil. He didn't know who he was at the beginning. He had to learn that as he went, which is actually almost neurodivergent in a sense. Can you imagine like someone being born, you spend your whole life watching them like grow up as a sibling or like a neighbor or whatever. And then one day they're like, I realized that I'm the son of God and I went through this experience in the desert and I almost threw myself off the roof because the devil was tempting me. But now I can do all these things and I can heal people. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) Hmm. there there might be a case made that people did interpret Jesus as crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, some people did. And so even within that framework, I think you can see the understanding of our disabilities and neurodivergences 
changes from day to day and like we may not understand everything about ourselves and our limitations and our boundaries and our abilities but like we can continue learning our potential as we go anyway yeah it's interesting to think of it as a coming out process too Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. There were people from the moment, I mean, from even before he was born, but especially the moment he was born that recognized that he was Christ, the son of God, but he did have to learn that for himself. And he taught in the temple when he was 12. So he was young when he kind of started taking on the role of being a leader and a teacher, but he still was a 12 year old mind. You know, how much did he understand what his role actually was, like what he would have to do being the son of God. I think that understanding grew and grew within him. And he did kind of have a moment where he began his ministry. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and like communed with God and then began his ministry. It's interesting that he had to step out and say, okay, I'm the son of God. Come unto me. Let me teach you. Let me heal you. Like, let me be who I'm meant to be. There are similarities to invisible disabilities, neurodivergence, LGBTQ there to have that Mm -hmm. moment of stepping out into your full self and doing what you're meant to do in this life. To people who are still learning about who they are, their identities, their true selves, like allow yourself to move from grace to grace until you receive that fullness, until you understand better who you are and who you're meant to be. And then once you're that, like come on. (laughs) That's awesome. Be who you're meant to be. And it comes with a lot of different challenges when you're marginalized and trying to be who you're meant to be, but there's divinity in that. There's holiness to that journey. That was really insightful and beautiful. Thank you, Katie. Yeah. And it's really cool to see how this section talks about Christ verses 12 through 14, moving from grace to grace. And then it says in verse 20, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the father. Therefore, I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. So yeah, it literally says like, this is his journey. This is also part of your journey. Yeah, where we can connect it to our personal lives. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to go into your thing? Yeah, so when I read section 93, I feel like I had a reading of it where it was like the rule book kind of thing. And then I looked at it again and was able to elevate my understanding of the section. Verse 19, it says, I give unto you these sayings that you may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship, that you may come unto the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness. When I read that verse, I was like, how to worship? Like my brain started making a do's and don'ts list. Like, okay, how do you worship? The next verse, it says, keep the commandments, etc. But then I realized that 93, it's split into two parts almost. Verses 1 through 20 is the purpose of the revelation, why we were given it. And then 20 through 53 is the actual revelation on pre-mortal existence and families I found a seminary manual for Doctrine and Covenants, and when it refers to this section, it says, quote, At the time this revelation was received, many people believed that our existence began at conception or at birth. So this was completely new revelation to the church. So then after reading that, I was like, oh, we're being taught these principles of the pre-earth life, expanding our understanding of eternity. So, in verse 19, so we can understand how better to worship and Mm. why we worship and what we worship. In this revelation, verses 23 and 29 reveal that man was also in the beginning with God, that we existed before we came to earth with God. And then we already talked about verses 13 and 20, where it talks about just as Christ continued grace to grace until he received a fullness, so also we shall continue grace to grace. Focusing on these principles glorifies our perceptions of God and of ourselves and affects how we worship. 
Super huh. cool. This section came in 1833. And think about like how long, I mean, still the church is so new, but still how long you're a member of the church and you didn't know about the pre-earth life. Yeah. Wow. I think that's so cool. That is really cool. I'm glad you shared that. I didn't know that. Okay, really quick. Verses 24 through 25. And truth is knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. And whatsoever is more or less than this is the spirit of that wicked one who was a liar from the beginning. I do not see truth as an objective thing. I definitely think that it's subjective in a lot of different ways. A picture of a cat is true in a different way than an actual cat being true in a different way than like a thought of a cat in your mind is true, right? Hmm. Those are all true. Like they all exist, but in different ways or like a description of something can be true, but still lacking information. Verse 36 says, the glory of God is intelligence or in other words, light and truth. Going back to the whole truth being objective or subjective, if you see truth as subjective or see multiple truths at once, and so therefore you cannot choose one over the other, then people who say that there's only one truth will say that you aren't intelligent, which by this verse means that you don't have the glory or the blessing of God and therefore are not holy. Hmm. Anyway, so I don't like the overly simplistic binary of like truth versus falsehood. I think it's just a lot more nuanced and a lot more beautiful. And like, if you believe that truth is an objective thing and someone is saying this is truth and then someone is saying, well, I think this is truth, it becomes mutually exclusive. And so then you get this cognitive, this dissonance, right? then you get this weaponized against dissent. And when you weaponize against dissent, you're weaponizing against neurodivergence. Hmm. Which could simply just be like the ability to see multiple truths at one time, to hold in one's mind conflicting things. Like that's literally just like a brain function that exists in some people to more or less extent. That doesn't make one of those people better or worse than the other. It just means that their brain can handle conflicting information and other people's brains can't handle conflicting information without, I got to go to one side. You know what I mean? Yeah. In my brain, we see this when I split, right? In my brain, I can handle conflicting information and nuance pretty well when I'm not splitting. (laughs) But when I split, then the switch goes off. Then it's one or the other. Different people, even different autistic people can handle different things better and, and handle lying and truth in different ways. I don't know. I just, I feel like this could be weaponized against dissent and therefore against neurodivergence. And I also just don't like just the association between lying with the spirit of the wicked one. Like, Mm, just because I'm seeing something differently than you does not mean that I'm wicked or that that thought is wicked. Anyway. It is interesting because to be a Christian, you have to be comfortable with paradox in certain places. Like we talked about the transcendence of God versus the imminence of God. Or you can even think about how we're taught that we are nothing. We are but the dust of the earth, but also... Christ atoned for us and he would have come and atoned for just us if we were the only person on earth. There's a level of truth to both, but one can't be completely true and the other false. There's some places where there's like a really beautiful tension of two different things that seem opposite, but they work together to allow us to explore how beautiful and vast and complicated God and eternity in our place on earth is i think what you said is exactly correct i think that that paradox needs to be there especially like with the whole opposition in all things right the opposition needs to be there because we need to have that tension because truth is found in the exploration of the tension does that make sense Mm. if there weren't Mm. the opposition then there would be no exploration wow and no no growth, no fluidity in that sense. That was beautiful thoughts. I'm wondering, do you believe that there is eternal truths and God has them? Or do you believe it's still not that simple? Like, are you asking, do I believe in an omniscient God and a God that knows everything? Yeah. 
No. <laughs> okay. Actually, Blair also talks about this in their book. Queer Theology? Yeah, in Queer Theology, they talk about this. And basically, we believe in eternal progression. And we believe that we can become like God. So, therefore, God is eternally progressing. Well, you can't progress if you already know everything. Hmm. So, like... If we're to become like God and Godhood is consistent with eternal progression, then God themselves cannot know everything. And I also believe that God knowing everything would infringe on our agency as well and infringe on the like anthropomorphism of God, I guess. Like we believe that God is human, right? Because we're created in the image of God and we believe that God can empathize with us or at least in the scriptures, we see a God who gets angry, who gets sad, who is happy, who feels peaceful. We believe in a God who feels different emotions. And maybe this is my brain, but I don't think a God who would know everything and know exactly the choices that we're going to make would necessarily have an emotional reaction to the choices that we make. Does that make sense? Hmm. Wow. I, I don't know. I feel like if you're going to believe in a God that knows everything that just you might as well just like believe in a computer. <laughs> like, hmm. The computer is not going to react to anything you say. It's just calculating things and nothing can surprise it. And therefore it's not going to have reactions. And I don't believe that, or at least I don't want to believe that. I mean, I personally am ambivalent about the idea of God anyway, in, at this point in my faith, but like, I would not want to believe in a God who is like that. I don't know. There's actually maybe a place where there's another healthy tension paradox. I I get what you're saying where like all knowing every single little thing, that might not be right, but there's some kind of foreknowledge that God has because we have in the scriptures that there's certain prophets that were foreordained to be prophets. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, and that all gets to like Doctrine and Covenants 9329, actually. Humanity was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence, or the light of truth, was not created or made. Neither indeed can be. All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself as all intelligence also. Otherwise, there is no existence. Like, if we did not have an intelligence separate from God, then we would not be able to act for ourselves, right? So, like, those Hmm. two intelligences, for them to exist at the same time, there has to be some things that the other intelligence does not know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Wow. Anyway, I thought verse 33 was interesting. That says humanity is spirit. The elements are eternal and spirit and element inseparably connected receive a fullness of joy. And when separated, humanity cannot receive a fullness of joy. I feel like this could be read in a lot of different ways. It could be affirming of disabled bodies, meaning like we deserve joy in them because it's part of our spirit. Or it could be affirming of certain types of neurodivergencies being like this is part of our body and it's part of our spirit. So therefore, it's like part of our soul. But I also feel like it could be gaslighty towards other neurodivergencies or mental illnesses saying that like, oh, it's not physical. It's just spiritual and it's all in your head. Or even if it's not affirming, you could say like, my body and my spirit are connected right now and I don't feel joy. Like if you have poor mental health, what's wrong with me? I am connected right now. I don't feel joy. Mm. When I'm separated, I won't feel joy. But will I feel joy again when when I'm reunited again, when I'm resurrected? Like there can be confusion there. Initially when I read it, I thought it was cool that it's like not limiting the type of body that you have. It's just talking about Mm. the existence of the soul, the existence of the connection between the body and the spirit. Like you talked about last episode, ranking bodies. This one does not. It's just saying when you personally are connected with your spirit and your body, that's where you find joy. And 
it kind of shares the idea of resurrection, but it's not specifically saying that. You could also read it as, while I'm on earth, my spirit and body are meant to be connected, and this is my time to be in my full identity to find joy, and I'll find that also again in resurrection. Good catch. And it's not just in resurrection that we'll find that because our bodies and spirits are connected right now. Yeah, I really like that. I like that because... I feel like it's consistent with my experiences in my body, right? Like, and my exploration of my body, especially like sexuality, that has brought me joy. And I feel like that has brought me like better mental health and better connection with myself. Yeah. And that's consistent with like spirit and body being together. However, there have been times where expressing my physicality sexually has not brought me joy. And I will acknowledge that, and especially as as someone who who has borderline personality disorder, one of the diagnostic criteria is self-harm. And that manifests in people in different ways. But for me, I went through a phase where I expressed that sexually. Hmm. Not necessarily like hurting myself, but like using that as a coping mechanism. Well, which I think can still be a good thing in some contexts. But like deliberately engaging in sexual relationships with people that I knew didn't care about me because I wanted to feel bad about myself. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. And that's like a very BPD thing, <laughs> um, mm. very like a trauma response thing. And so it's interesting to me that you said that because it's like both of those examples for which there are multiple cases. <laughs> technically i was doing the same thing right technically whatever i was expressing myself sexually with a person consensually but like at some points i felt connected and other points i didn't you know and the difference like connected with myself with my body Mm -hmm. and we talk about like self-betrayal a lot in mental health circles and that's the difference you can learn how to like not betray yourself in any situation whether that's spiritually sexually physically or disability wise like we need to understand ourselves and like respect ourselves and love ourselves enough to know when we're betraying ourselves and sometimes that can look the same on the outside but it's really about like what it is on the inside and whether your spirit and your body are connected. Wow. Yeah. So while you're on earth, you have a body, you have a spirit, but if they're not connected with certain moments, if you're betraying yourself, Mm -hmm. then you cannot find that joy. Even if both are there, they still Mm -hmm. have to be intertwined and connected together. That makes me think of going back to like grace for grace, you know, because an eternal progression, you're always going to be changing. So maybe what would be an act of self-betrayal right now might not be an act of self-betrayal a year from now or five years from now, even if it's the same exact situation with the same exact people or whatever. And so I think that's important to give yourself that grace of like, hey, I'm always changing. I need to honor who I am right now, right? Instead of like worrying about I've made this rule for myself and I've and I'm never going to break it because that's just going to give you more anxiety or yeah. it could trigger your anxiety. Yeah, and I agree to that to a point. I would say that's true for yourself that you are in control of how you're changing and your connection between your body and your spirit and you need to be aware of that and be true to yourself and do your best to not betray yourself. Of course, There are times when you're put in situations where you don't have a choice, something happens and you feel betrayed by other people. Mm -hmm. And that's where I would caution when you're bringing another person into it, it gets just that much more complicated because you're talking about their ability to change Mm -hmm. and their agency, right? Which you can't control. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it gets a little complicated. But yeah, I love, love that thought about like true connection between your body and your spirit and how that can be disconnected even while we're on earth while both exist oh thank you oh let's talk about so verse 35 says the elements are the tabernacle of god yea man is the tabernacle of god even temples and whatsoever temples defiled god shall destroy that temple (laughs) i didn't like that (laughs) like mm, defiled 
this can get really like rape culture-y. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Like, oh, you, your body is your temple and someone defiled your temple. Therefore, God's going to destroy you. Like, why is it that you're going to destroy the thing that existed before it was defiled instead of destroying the person or the thing who like defiled it? I mean, if you're going to destroy anything, mm. destroy the perpetrator, not the victim. And then like, how do you define defile? They didn't they didn't define that. So wow. So this verse, the elements are the tabernacle of God, yea, man is the tabernacle of God, even temples, and then it goes into defiling the temple. At least the beginning of that, I thought it was really cool that it describes God. The tabernacle of God is the elements and is man. And I think about, whoa, like I don't have a full understanding of what that means, but part of it, I am connecting that God could not be God without the creations that God made. God created man and God created the elements and that composes, that's like what makes up God. Mm. But yeah, you can't ignore the end. (laughs) I don't fully understand the end, but yeah, there could be some problematic things, especially our narrative in our gospel about pairing temples with bodies when you talk about defiling a body or defiling a temple yeah we know that there's a lot of problems with how we teach that in the church and how it can lead to concepts of rape culture and oppressing women and victim blaming and things like that yeah yeah we're gonna take a quick break right here and share a short message with you I'm going to take a risk in this ad by saying the word holiness right here in the very first sentence. That's risky because the word can trigger all kinds of positive or negative feelings. I mean, sometimes I'm afraid to call something holy because it makes things feel sort of unrelatable or or like disconnected from everyday life. And really, I mean, that's too bad because the word's actually related to wholeness and helpfulness, which suggests that maybe we can learn to find holiness in places we never really thought to look before. I'm talking about holiness like a fire. It can warm, but it can also burn. You might get smoke in your eyes, but the flickering flames are also really beautiful. If this kind of holiness sounds appealing, you should check out Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's a podcast featuring writers, artists, and activists who can help expand your concept of holiness to include the gritty, earthy stuff of everyday life. Come fan the flames of your curiosity at Fireside with Blair Hodges, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Available at firesidepod.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Back to our discussion, we are still in Doctrine and Covenants 93. We're now looking at verse 41 where it references Frederick G. Williams. Frederick G. Williams! He was disabled! Oh my gosh, tell me more. I didn't know. Yeah. So on this website called Doctrine and Covenants Central, this is an article written by Susan Easton Black. The vision of this website is to build enduring faith in Jesus Christ by making the Doctrine and Covenants accessible, comprehensible, and defensible to people everywhere. Susan writes, Youthful Frederick had a near-fatal accident when he and his friends attempted to cross Lake Erie on the ice. The ice broke, leaving them stranded on a floating ice block until rescued by a boat captain the next day. Frederick never fully regained his health. Perhaps it was his health problems that led him to study the herb-based Thompsonian method of medicine. And there's this article written by, like, his great-great-grandson, whose name is also Frederick G. Williams. (laughs) And it's in the BYU studies. And this article is called The Medical Practice of Dr. Frederick G. Williams. And in there, it basically says that he started out farming. And it says that in 1816, he stopped clearing the land because his health was failing. Well, in 1816, he was only 29 years old. Mm. So it doesn't use the word disabled, obviously, but he had limited mobility. At least this is my understanding, my theory from all these little tidbits about him. He became a doctor according to the Thompsonian method. And this information is an academic article called The Early Botanical Medical Movement as a Reflection of Life, Liberty, and Literacy in Jacksonian America by Michael A. Flannery. 
Flannery says, premised upon a unique brand of frontier egalitarianism exemplified in the Tennessee war hero Andrew Jackson, the age that bore Jackson's name was ostensibly anti-intellectual, venerating, quote, intuitive wisdom and, quote, common sense over book learning and formal education. Likewise, the Thompsonian movement eschewed, that means rejected, schooling and science for an empirical embrace of nature's apothecary, a populist rhetoric that bellied its own complex and extensive infrastructure of polemic literature. So this way of practicing medicine, it says it utilized the rhetoric of the age to promote a uniquely American form of self-help health care. The populism and egalitarianism that characterized the Jacksonian era was a powerful force in the New Republic, which I thought was super interesting. It almost reminds me of doTERRA stuff. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, we we don't believe in science, but we still want to like cure you and like make you feel better. But at the same time, science back then was not the way it is now. And actually... Frederick G. Williams did some like pretty progressive medical procedures, I found out as I was researching, or at least the way he was practicing was kind of progressive in my opinion. Oh, another thing that makes me think that he was disabled is that he had people come visit him instead of traveling around. Hmm. He had his own little house in Kirtland, Ohio, and he had an herb garden on either side of it. And he like placed these long ads <laughs> and like newspapers advertising himself and people came to him for his like herbal remedies, which is really cool. Wow. But what made me curious about him was verses 41 through 43 in section 93, he's criticized for not teaching his children light and truth according to the commandments and basically saying that the wicked one has power over him and his family and that he needs to set his house in order if he wants to be delivered from Satan. And he was like a pretty prominent dude. Yeah, he was a member of the first presidency. Yes. But I didn't know anything besides that. That's really interesting. There's a church news article from like 2006. It says that he served 10 missions, which confuses me if he was disabled, how he served 10 missions. But I don't know. It, it seems like he had possibly mobility issues, but like limited, but still able to serve, if that makes sense. I don't know. This is my understanding. So I'm not sure about like where he served his missions and stuff. The church news article continues that his farm in Kirtland, Ohio, gave the fledgling church a foothold in that location. He was the prophet scribe from 1832 to 1836, which is interesting. He was a scribe for Joseph Smith when this like revelation was received. His printing company published the first Doctrine and Covenants and the first hymnal in 1835 in three early newspapers. He wrote the history of Zion's camp and was present at many spiritual manifestations. And yeah, like you said, he served as second counselor to Joseph Smith from 1833 to 1837. And then different sources say that he was like excommunicated and restored to fellowship twice. Another source says, oh, we aren't 100% sure that he was excommunicated. Anyway, so that's like kind of murky, mm. but it seems like there was some sort of tension between him and Joseph, despite him being that close to him, which is wow. really interesting. And I was like, why is that? Here's a theory why perhaps he was chastened. And this is from the Sperry Symposium Classics, The Doctrine and Covenants. It's like a talk in this like little journal published by the BYU Religious Studies Center. And this talk is called The Doctrines of Submission and Forgiveness by Daniel K. Judd. It's basically talking about selfishness versus selflessness and like submission and forgiveness to authority, like that kind of vibe. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I don't particularly like it. <laughs> But anyway, in this talk, he says, Frederick G. Williams was obedient to the Lord's command to not sell his farm, which property assisted the Lord in establishing a stronghold in the land of Kirtland, which 
is referenced in Doctrine and Covenants 64. Some two and a half years later, the Lord revealed that Frederick G. Williams had not taught his children properly and was to set his house in order. In addition to this warning, the scriptures contain many other warnings relative to the relationship of family and church responsibilities. The Savior chastised the ancient Pharisees for perverting the gospel when he indicted them for abdicating the care of their families on the grounds of Corbin in Mark 7.11. The Bible Dictionary teaches that the Pharisees, quote, misused the opportunity of dedicating their material possessions to God in order to avoid responsibility to care for their parents, end quote. It is important that those in the present be aware of the danger of not being as diligent and concerned at home as they are in their professional or ecclesiastical assignments. Never should serving our neighbors become a rationalization for not serving those at home. I guess I should say we don't have any definite answers for why he was chastised in this section. I personally think we would go amiss if we didn't consider that it was somehow tied in with his disability, or at least we need to consider like how the disability affected him. Yeah. Anyway, it is a pretty consistent thing where they're saying in these articles that his disability is one of the main things that prompted him to become a doctor. So going back to this article by his great-great-grandson, so he grew his own herbs, like I said, on either side of his house in Kirtland, and actually people mocked him for it, especially after the word of wisdom came out. (sighs) Yeah. Here's this quote from this article written by his great-great-grandson. As was common with 19th century households, there would be a garden near the home for kitchen vegetables and spice herbs. In the case of a botanical doctor like Frederick G. Williams, there would also be a herbarium where he would raise his own plants for medicinal purposes. In a work largely prepared by D.P. Hurlbird but published under Eber D. Howe's name, Mormonism Unveiled in 1834. So basically, this is some anti-Mormon literature, basically, that was published way back in the day. There is a passage, although critical in tone, confirming that Dr. Williams had not one, but two herb gardens, one on each side of his Kirtland home. The reference comes with the mocking of the revelation received by Joseph Smith Jr. in Kirtland on February 27th, 1833, commonly referred to as the Word of Wisdom, which speaks of things that should not be ingested and those that should, including the, quote, wholesome herb herbs God hath ordained for the constitution, nature, and use of man. We are next told that every wholesome herb God ordained for the use of man, and we should infer that the writer or the recording angel had been inducted into the modern use of herbs by the celebrated Dr. F.G. Williams, who is associated with the prophet and the nominal proprietor of a monthly paper which is issued from the Mormon Kennel in Kirtland. F.G. Williams is a revised quack, but whether he claims protection by right of letters patent from the general government or by communion with spirits from other worlds we are not authorized to determine but should conclude that he would be adequate to dictate the above mockery at revelation and rigmarole in relation to food for cattle anyway so like this dude called him a quack (laughs) so webster's 1828 dictionary for quack says a boaster one who pretends to skill or knowledge which he does not possess Mm. or a boastful pretender to medical skill which he does not possess so basically this dude's gaslighting him because he doesn't consider him a real doctor we see this in disability spaces too where like if someone cannot receive like the care that they need from the medical institution, then they or we will try to receive the care that we need through alternative practices, right? But a lot of times people will be like, well, that's not the right treatment. Why are you getting acupuncture for a brain tumor? You know what I mean? Um, Or Mm -hmm. just anything that's not like Western medicine, People are kind of like, well, you're crazy for doing that. You're crazy to think that that's going to make a difference. There's no scientific basis for that. But going on to this whole thing about how like progressive he was, apparently he was open about the fact that he like used indigenous medicine practices. Wow. There was an advertisement quoted in this article by his great-great-grandson. 
Dr. W. would notify the citizens of this county and the public at large that he has located himself in the town of Quincy, three, and is now prepared to attend to all who may favor him with their patronage by practicing on the Indian and German system of distinguishing disease by an examination of the urine, and that he will always apply vegetable medicine which are perfectly free from all those deleterious effects which are always the result from the use of mineral medicines. Dr. W.'s medicines are procured from the field and the forest, carefully selected and prepared in such a manner that he can recommend them to the afflicted to operate in harmony with all the laws of animal life. And then it continues um, wow. talking about how his stuff like cleanses the gut. I don't know if that might have been considered appropriation or that people now might. I don't know. But I do know that he was open about that. He didn't look down on it. In fact, he considered himself to be drawing from that wisdom. So back then, and this article actually goes into it a lot, back then they used a lot of like substances when treating people that were like kind of poisonous or like could have an adverse effect on someone. Mm. Uh, So in the article, he's saying whether or not his treatments worked, you can debate it, but at the very least they didn't cause active harm like the other doctors of the day who used more like western scientific practices does that make sense wow yeah anyway so i thought that was really cool and then a few more facts about him almost done i promise so he also treated women with cramps and women's weakness and pregnancy he had a treatment to prevent sore nipples or breasts He treated people with STDs and even a few women who had STDs, although they didn't call it that. They called it venereal disease. But I was just like, wow, this dude's kind of like dope. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. What the heck? Part of me wonders, like, I feel like a doctor like that is even pretty progressive nowadays in the church. Like, if we look at Natasha Helfer, I mean, she, she was like a therapist and sexual health sort of thing which is not quite the same as sexual diseases but still it falls into like the ooh, it, we're talking about sex like that's on the edge of being sinful you know what i mean yeah and so a part of me wonders if his approach to his medicinal practice is part of why there is this tension between him and joseph if joseph was more conservative in that way anyway yeah, that's all I had for 93. Yay, done with 93. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have something really brief for 94. So 94 is the section that talks about building buildings for the church, and it later includes the temple. In this section, it gives very, very exact measurements from the Lord to build these buildings. And I thought it was really cool. I kind of see it as an example of accommodation that the Lord gives. At the end of the section, it kind of just cuts off out of nowhere. And it says, and now I give unto you no more at this time. Amen. <laughs> In the middle of all these instructions. And then it's like, and that's it. Bye. Like God's like, I spent all my spoons for today. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought about also how it's saying that's all for now, but I'll come back and yeah. share more with you. And how it's an example of how the Lord teaches line upon line, how he gives us as much as we need at a time for us to understand, and how he gives us time to follow instructions, and how all of these things are like accommodations to humans' capacities while we're trying to live in a higher way. I really hope the way you're interpreting it is the case, and it's not just like Joseph Smith had to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> like oh, that's Revelation's all for now. over. That's all the Lord has to say. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> that's hilarious. No, that's great. Yeah, because like he was the one who had to reveal all these things that the Lord was saying. Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyway, wow. Um. Well. <laughs> Oh, 94. Verse 8. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know what it means. It says the unclean thing should not enter. One footnote was to Jesus throwing the money changers out of the temple. And then another footnote in verse 9 in the following verse sends us back to section 90, verse 18 in the Doctrine and Covenants, where uncleanness is right there associated with slothfulness, which I do not like. So... 
I don't know. Depending on what they meant there, that could be problematic if they mean people who are not like industrious, you know, who for some reason can't work. Uh, anyway, and the Webster's like 1828 dictionary didn't really specify either. Like the first definition was not clean, foul, dirty, filthy. The second definition was in the Jewish law, ceremonially impure, not cleansed by ritual practices. So maybe that's what they meant. But then if so, why are these footnotes back to like Jesus throwing money changers out and back to like slothfulness, you know? Oh, and and to add to that point, when they first built the temple, part of the temple was where they would meet for sacrament meeting. So it wouldn't be that. It's not mm, the fact okay. that like you have to be baptized to enter the temple. Like they, there was previous revelation that said, you don't have to be a member to be in our sacrament meeting. And then they are allowing sacrament meetings in the temple. So it couldn't be that either. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's helpful. So not that one either. And then the third one is foul with sin, which is not any more specific than unclean. I just wish they were specific about who they're talking to or talking about and like exactly what it means by unclean there's there's some sort of like standard here that it's setting forth but it's not saying what it means so how can you live up to a standard or an expectation if you don't know what it is that's my issue with that verse right yeah okay for section 95 verse 6 says they who are not chosen have sinned a very grievous sin and that they are walking in darkness at noonday and i was like "Mm, that feels ableist but i was like maybe i'm being overly like sensitive to it you know and so i like went to the footnote (laughs) that in the footnote goes to deuteronomy 28 verses 28 through 29 which um is talking about what the Lord will do to the children of Israel if they don't obey. And it says, quote, The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart, and thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind groped in darkness. And thou shalt not prosper in thy ways, and thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> And then in verse 12 in section 95, it says the whole walking in darkness thing again. So, like, is it better than what Deuteronomy said? Yes. Is it still, like, referencing Deuteronomy and, like, there's still footnotes that go back to it and probably is coming from, like, the same mindset? Yes. So that's concerning to me because it just continues the extremely harmful and dangerous association between sin and disability that we deserve our disabilities or that God is punishing us by making us disabled. Wow. Wow. Let me, I'm going to share my note on 95, section 95. Let me read something from Come Follow Me really quick. It says, the Lord chastens those he loves About five months had passed since January 1833 when the Lord had commanded the saints in Kirkland to build a house of God and hold a solemn assembly. When the revelation recorded in section 95 was received in June of 1833, they had not yet acted on that commandment. And then when you read section 95, so the Lord kind of goes into chastening the people, but the very first verse starts with, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, whom I love, and whom I love I also chasten, that their sins may be forgiven. For with the chastisement I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things out of temptation, and I have loved you. And I thought that was really cool that the Lord showed love first and then called the people to repentance and chastise them. Repentance can be a really hard topic, especially when there's neurodivergent ideas of when one should repent and when one shouldn't and how someone would repent if you go to an authority figure or if you just do it yourself and you know there's a lot of complicated things with repentance but I think something that's really really important when repentance happens or when we're inviting people to repent is to first show love because that's why it exists how it's able to exist and that's what I thought of when we read the announcement from the first uh, about yeah. wearing masks and vaccines that they like showed love for people in the invitation. And then although they didn't specifically say the word repent, they're inviting people 
to be vaccinated, to wear masks, and listen to medical experts and government leaders. So in a way, I mean, obviously with what's happening around the U.S. with people rejecting vaccines and masks, I see it as a call to repentance, Mm -hmm. um, but as a very soft one. I like the way your your thought process is going right here. I like the fact that it shows that holding someone accountable and loving them are not mutually exclusive. In fact, it says, I'm holding you accountable because I love you. Yeah. For with the chastisement, I prepare a way for their deliverance and all things out of temptation. So like with mm-hmm. the accountability, with me trying to hold you accountable, I'm like giving you a way out. Like I'm giving you a chance to be better. Yeah. And I really like that. I think that can be applied in lots of different circumstances with social justice and trying to bring in the marginalized and make accommodations for people and hold people accountable for like microaggressions against people yeah it's when i feel like well they're never going to change that i stop trying to hold them accountable so me trying to hold you accountable or a disabled or neurodivergent person calling you out and being like hey, this is not okay, what you said isn't cool, or hey, like, you're not providing the accommodations I asked for, they're bringing it up to you because they believe in your capacity to do better. Yeah, it's kind of like the difference that we talked about before of, like, a fear-based God versus, like, a unconditionally loving God. Mm-hmm. Both gods can invite people to repent, but there's a different feeling when you are called to repentance or when you actually repent based on your mindset of repentance and being invited to repent can be an act of love and it should always be an act of love it shouldn't it's hard because you don't want to judge people and call them to repentance but there's some things like when a disabled person says i need this accommodation and i didn't get it you know i don't think that that's like oh they're being judgmental and they just need to be patient no there's some yeah. lines somewhere in there where we shouldn't be judgmental and we should let people choose for themselves and find what's best for them. But there's also points where it's like, nope, that's wrong. And I, I think it's important to recognize me saying this is not like giving an opportunity to people to be like, oh, well, they didn't say it with love, so I'm not going to listen to what they said tone policing someone when they're trying to ask you to do better like don't do that i guess my point is the very act itself of asking you to do better is an expression of love like whatever the tone is and some of us do not have good control over our tones (laughs) like me (laughs) anyway one more thing in section 97 well let me read what come follow me says To the saints in the 1830s, Zion was a place, the literal city of our God. But in the revelation recorded in section 97, the Lord expanded that view. Zion also describes a people, quote, the pure in heart. And Serena, what do you think about the Lord expanding our view on things that seem so set? (laughs) I I love it. I feel like you're implying something that I'm catching the reference to, though. Well, I just think about all the things that we think are so set right now mm-hmm. in the church mm-hmm. and that have to be expanded. Oh, like, like commandments or... Yeah. No, I mean, for example, LGBTQ people in the church. Yeah. No matter what your thought is on the policies that the church has in place about LGBTQ people, it has to be expanded. Like, that's just yeah. it. We've learned so much more since the 90s about the LGBTQ community and all these different identities that are brought in. Literally, our knowledge has to grow. So seeing how big of a difference this moment was for the saints, where it was a literal place that you could stand on with your two feet, and then suddenly it's in your heart, the pure in heart Mm. is what it's described as. It really is something that is kind of totally different to the saints at that time. Like they took it so literally and then it was a total change for them. And I do believe that the Lord is going to expand our view on many, many things that we take as doctrine right now as like straight truth, the word of God, period. That's it. Nope. And Mm -hmm. we know that we are a church of continuing revelation. Well, we are getting right to the end of our episode, but before we close, we have a call to action for you, our friends. 
I mean, there's lots of calls to action, lots of stuff going on in the world right now. A specifically overtly disability call to action, though. So I talk about borderline personality disorder pretty frequently. It's impacted every area of my life, including my spirituality. And as a disclaimer, and I don't know if I've said this before, but I actually don't have a professional diagnosis. (laughs) That's something that I'm working on. It's something that's really difficult to obtain. I just bring that up because as complicated as the diagnostic process is for personality disorders, it's that way for a good reason. And that reason is that the traits and patterns and motivations and causes, etc., of personality disorders vary widely, but they can often be hard to pinpoint or understand in a nuanced manner, like without years of education. In the United States, professionals largely use the DSM, which um, we talked about in episode 20, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. So... In the USA, we use the DSM to diagnose and treat personality disorders. However, outside of the USA, the ICD is widely used instead, and that's the International Classification of Diseases by the World Health Organization. So this manual that they have for the classification of diseases, they have an update, number 11, that's coming out in a couple months. The latest update proposes changes to diagnosing personality disorders that would completely obliterate the little progress we've made recently for the understanding of and destigmatization of personality disorders. And this is something that we face on a daily basis. So this change to the ICD we're pretty upset about it. Right now, there's like 10 different personality disorders, clusters A, B, and C. And basically, the ICD wants to get rid of all of them except for one emotionally unstable personality disorder. And then just like rank us by severity of our symptoms, even though our symptoms like very hugely. It's like getting rid of all the different classifications for like chronic illnesses and being like, okay, you have a chronic illness and we're going to rate you, you're a seven on a chronic illness because you have this. And I'm a three on the chronic illness because you have these symptoms. And it's like, well, she has Crohn's disease. I have narcolepsy. Like, why are we even in the same category? It goes into lots of things with diagnosis in terms of like kids, because a lot of these things should not be diagnosed until after adolescence, because just in terms of trauma responses and because they can mirror neurodiversity things. And there's like such a huge misdiagnosis slash like comorbid disorder problem there and a gender bias. Like if this happens, like we're all going to be under the same category and no one's going to get the help that they need. Those of us who have really extreme symptoms are going to be even more stigmatized because we're going to be on the higher end and therapists might choose not to work with us. And those who are like on the lower end might not be taken seriously and gaslit even more. For those of you who are pro-mental health and pro-neurodiversity, there's a petition by Light Ediand, L-I-G-H-T-E-D-I-A-N-D. That's her Instagram. And she started this petition and we've actually made a lot of traction and it's to stop the ICD-11 personality disorder model from coming into practice. I will put it in our link tree and I will be posting about it in our stories on Instagram. So follow us on Instagram at holyhuman, W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash holyhuman. Email us if you'd like to be involved at holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. We also want to thank Matt for intro and outro music. We access the song from freesound.org.